Welcome to Robot Friends, a podcast that actively harms its audience. Episode 13, Eigenrobot vs. Steven Godofsky. Good morning, all. I'm here with Steven Godofsky at sgodofsk on Twitter. He is one of the, the members of the famous Godofsky trio. Um, Steven, how you doing? Doing pretty good. How about you? Oh, pretty good. You know, the nicotine withdrawal is still hitting me, and I actually <laughs> forgot to put on a nicotine patch before this podcast, so I feel good right now, but things could get weird <laughs> we'll, we'll see how <laughs> as, it goes. as we go on. Yeah. Um, yeah, it's 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 interesting out here in Seattle, too. We actually got blanketed with snow today, so I was going to head yeah, over to see- There's ice outside here in Virginia, so, you know. No way. Ri- yeah. Yeah. I mean, I mean, I think we actually might get more snow than you because it's uh, the weather is more variable, but- yeah, we have we have some ice and there were some accidents apparently. Oof. Yeah. No, man, people are just not used to driving in this kind of weather. Um so yeah, I God, where to begin? Um I when I think of the Godofskis, I think of you guys as having a relatively strong background and just thinking or arguing about, you know, issues related to strategy or the military or national security or or you know, all, all of these kinds of things that you might think about playing out in a risk game. Um, <laughs> that, that's something Peter, Peter and I have a little bit of a, uh, an, a, uh, an interest in that Alex a bit less. So yeah, he seems like he's more into accounting, which is fine. He's an actuary. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so, so how, or yeah, actuarial science. So, so how did you guys come to that? Was it just like an interest that you had growing up or? Um, maybe a bit. Uh, there were a couple things, some forums I was on. Um, in college, I was the world's worst ROTC cadet. Oh, um, really? Okay. Yeah. Yeah. I was, uh, I mean, I enjoyed it, but, uh, I don't think I was a very good cadet. And ultimately I decided that the, the national guard was not for me. So I didn't commission. Um, but uh, that sort of jump started my kind of interest in it, and um, uh, there there were some strategy games that I that I played that sort of got me interested, and I, I wound up just doing a lot of reading, uh, and uh, following like trade publications for like defense and that sort of thing. Which, by the way, yeah. all of those publications are like completely in bed with the defense industry. They're, they're like industry racks. So they're like, they're, they tend to be mainly focused, not on, you know, the interesting kind of strategy stuff that lay people are in, but like, okay, so who won which contract and how much money are they getting? You know, that's informative yeah, sure. in its own way, but it's not really aimed at, um, it, it, it's, I'm not really the intended audience. Sure. Yeah. I hadn't realized you had been an ROTC and I don't know that much about ROTC. So, so it's hard for me to kind of get a grasp of what, what you might've done well with or what you might not have liked. What, what made you a bad ROTC, I don't know, candidate officer? I like to argue. Um, oh, <laughs> okay. Uh, no, no, I didn't have problems like basically doing what I'm what, 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 what I'm told, you know, there were, there, there were just a few things. Also, it's mostly that I was 19. Right. And I was, I just wasn't yeah. that mature at the time. I think if I went back through it now, I'd be fine. Um, in ROTC, you don't learn any like interesting, like grand strategy and stuff. You've learned some fairly simple rote stuff. The first two years is sort of analogous to basic combat training for enlisted mm-hmm. personnel. So, you know, it was a fun experience. It kept me in shape. I didn't gain the freshman 15 and, you know, 
Uh, I, I learned to roll myself out of bed at the crack of dawn. So, you know, that's helpful. But other than that, I don't think it gave me some unique insights other than, you know, what it's like to a little bit to wear a uniform. Interesting. Okay. So, and th- that leads to where we are now and you're, you're private sector at this point, right? Yeah, I am. actually pretty cool. So I guess I guess that's just context for everybody for what we're about to talk about. We're not professionals. At the same time, you know, I, I have a certain view of experts and maybe there's something to be learned from people who just do things like obsessively read trade magazines and and think about things in their spare time. So um I, I guess a good way to open this is what are you what are you angriest about? Or like, what do you not, not angry, but like mad, you know, in that online mad sense, what are you most mad about in terms of geopolitics right now? Um, I think everyone's most mad about China. <laughs> uh, it's what's happening with Hong Kong. Um, you know, Hong Kong used to be like a jewel, you know? Yeah. A world financial center. It's like, I, I, there's little I regret more than the fact that I not never got to see Hong Kong before they passed the national security law because it was truly an amazing place and it's just not the same anymore. And yeah. uh, then, of course, you have an actual genocide going on. And uh, the economist insists that it's a crime against humanity, but not a genocide. I <laughs> sorry don't. No, (laughs) I'm just trying to think about how exactly to react to that. Um, It's fine. I'm mad. (laughs) I'm, I'm, I'm just real mad. Go on. Yeah. 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 No, it, things have changed and in particular things have changed in China. You know, um, one thing to think about people make fun of Tom Friedman a lot, very justifiably for his, um, you know, McDonald's hypothesis, right? You're familiar. The idea is like no two countries that have ever have ever gone to war that have a McDonald's have ever gone to war. It wasn't true when he said it. And it really isn't <laughs> true. It, it, it literally wasn't true. So, so some examples, we invaded Panama in like the early nineties, right? Oh, sure. Uh huh. And then, and then there was, then there was the, the Cargill war between India and Pakistan. There, there are some other examples. Uh, so it wasn't true when he said it, it's really not true now. And yeah, after, uh, um, after but the basic idea that he was trying to get at, through his clumsy means, was that economic integration leads to peace. And there's something for that, right? And the idea that, like, there, there was also this notion that as, as, like, the communist bloc turns to market economies, that it, the market, that autocratic regimes can't survive, like, the growing market economy and stuff like that. And I think that might have been true in some sense, the way, like, tuberculosis used to not survive penicillin, that we have selectively bred autocratic oh, no. regimes that that can coexist yeah and i think that may be with with the globalization right um and there's another point to be made which is i think that our trade relations with china have actually made conflict more likely at this point really yeah and here's why so so to, to by way of analogy the civil war in large part happened because Northerners did not want to be involved in the institution of slavery. And they were forced to be involved in the institution of slavery by things like the Fugitive Slave Act, 
right? Mm-hmm. If it's all yeah. happening in Alabama and you live in Rhode Island, it's sort of out of sight, out of mind. If people are literally rounding up folks in your community and sending them like like slave catchers rounding up folks in your community, you have suddenly have to care, right? Um, by way of analogy, when we have the Chinese trying to export their censorship to like the Houston Rockets, yeah, you know, all of a sudden, now does this mean we go to war with them? I don't know about that, right? But does this mean um, it's it certainly encourages us to reduce our, our our trade relations, and it makes it a lot more likely that we're going to try to be belligerent uh, because the world winds up not being big enough for both of us when that's going on. Yeah, I don't know about that. I mean, it's one thing that's been very striking to me is is that American firms have pretty broadly just knuckled under and and accepted whatever sorts of demands that Chinese authorities have put on them. I mean, Hollywood is censoring movies and changing scripts so that they have a greater chance of actually being broadcast in China. I mean, the NBA is doing is doing their stuff and I mean other firms are doing this more subtly, I think, but nobody wants to lose business in China. Right. And the American businesses are not on their own going to pull out of that market, I think, until until it just becomes too dangerous for them to do business there. In some cases, you know, a lot of manufacturers are pulling out because enforcing contracts is getting harder. Having employees there means that they're subject to basically being kidnapped by the Chinese government. It's becoming yeah. less and less safe to do business in China, but it's still uh-huh. extremely lucrative. And... Um, uh, I think that uh, we're going to see continued decoupling coming from the government as yeah, public I mean, pressure builds up about this sort of thing. I wonder about that. I mean, as far as I know, the Biden family hasn't even divested from China at this point, right? I have no idea. Um, but if you look at Congress, for example, anger about Hong Kong and about uh, uh, what's going on in Xinjiang or however you pronounce that, I forgive me, um, is – pretty overwhelming and you know that's that it's, it's going to be unavoidable that we're going to have um at least some economic uh restructuring with respect to our trade relationship with china i think and uh, i don't think i don't i think even if president biden wanted to stop it i don't know that he could uh it's just i mean we saw with like um Congress can't force the president to do a whole lot, but in this kind of circumstance, uh, you you can only sail so far upwind, you know. Yeah, yeah. I don't know. I mean, I'm I've been pretty dismayed at the rate of response of I don't know both both industry and Congress, I guess. To I mean, everything that's been happening in China, and I guess on the other hand, you know, Biden has. There was a somewhat publicized pivot that he did when his administration came in that did something like cut the cut the number of people assigned to the Middle East in half and, and doubled it in, in APAC, so uh, Asia Pacific. So, so I don't know. Um, maybe, maybe that is you talking of- about the Pacific pivot. Yeah, yeah. Um, it's funny because I think that happened like right before the Russian invasion of Crimea. Yeah. Um, which of course led to the military reemphasizing, uh, ground conflict with the Russians for a good long while. And, uh, uh, see, we had just finished pulling the tanks out of Europe and then we turned around and put them back. So oh, we actually put them back. Interesting. I we have that. a rotational brigade. This is something that, that there are others who could, who could discuss this more credibly than I can. 
Uh, I don't know if they do it on a podcast, though. Um, the army saves money, I think, or thinks it saves money by having a rotational presence where instead of permanently stationing people somewhere, it'll take like a brigade from Fort Hood or something, right? And it'll send it over for like a year and then bring it back and then send a different one over for a year and then bring it back, right? So you don't have to move people's families and pay for them to move. But um, what I've been told by some friends, I had a friend who was in the North Carolina um, Army National Guard, uh, which I think ha- is an, has an armored unit. And he was telling me that it's made their uh, tempo kind of ridiculous because there aren't enough armor brigades to handle all of the ongoing rotational requirements. Cause you need like three for every single one uh-huh. because they have yeah. to rotate. Mm-hmm. So we've put ro- instead of having them permanently stationed there, we've we've put a brigade in Poland and that's supposed to deter the Russians. I mean, I, isn't the argument for that sort of thing usually that, it is sort of the there's somebody discussing the the men that we had in Berlin during the Cold War. You know, they they would surely fall immediately, but it was a really credible commitment because you know if if the the brigade that we had in Berlin was overrun, then the United States would almost have to respond. So I think we actually only had a battalion, which is like battalion, okay. men. But we also had two hundred and fifty thousand troops in Europe total, something like yeah. that. Yeah. So. To, the, the force structure of NATO uh, had two army groups, okay? Uh, and an, an army group, I think, is something like um, – I think in that case, it might have been as many as like eight or 12 divisions, something like that. I can't remember the exact numbers. It's a lot of guys. And uh, they were behind – remember, because Berlin is far behind the inner German border, yep. right? Um, pretty close to Poland, actually. So – we had guys who were in West Germany and they were all arrayed along the inner German border. So, you know, the, the West German garrison was token, but the, the total forces we had in Europe were not. Yeah. Huh. Okay. I, I think we might be getting a bit sidetracked, which is we are. fine. We are. Um, so that all this leads me to think, you know, we talked about Congress being angry and Biden maybe being, you know, kind of forced into something and, you know, commerce kind of pulling out, maybe if they're being forced at some point or it's just becoming too risky. One, one other aspect of this we haven't talked about is what, what does the military make of this? And do, does the Pentagon have a view here? So I don't know. I do know that the Pentagon like is very, very heavily, like the first priority is pretty clearly. If you just sort of read the tea leaves, it's pretty clearly China. And, uh, I remember thinking on a lot of occasions, you know, it would be really smart if they did such and such. And then finding out months later that they are, and some examples are like, um, uh, so, so, uh, like the Taiwan scenario, I think is the biggest one that's on people's minds. Yeah. And, um, one big focus lately has been things like expanding airfield capacity in, uh, Northern Marianas Islands and in Guam. Mm Mm-hmm. Uh, so because, uh, those are air bases that are just outside the range of most of China's ballistic missiles, but also close enough to Taiwan and the Chinese coast that aircraft can get from there and strike at Chinese targets. Interesting. Okay. So, so, so you see a lot of that. And then when you see things like uh, a focus on missile defense and air defense, um, a lot of that is concerned with protecting Guam, protecting ships, protecting Taiwan and so on, and South Korea and Japan 
from Chinese and North Korean ballistic missiles uh, in the event of a shooting war. Okay. So people are thinking about it and it's sort of the front not, of not only thinking about it, but it's actually driving procurement. Um, if you, if you think it might be good to think about how like a war over Taiwan might play out to sort of understand what the, uh, what the requirements would be. Um, and that's kind of an open-ended conversation. Yeah. But uh, one thing to think about is that 95% roughly of Chinese trade is by sea. Mm-hmm. Um, they have land borders. Those land borders do not have significant transportation connections. They've got like a railroad that goes into Kazakhstan or something like that. And a railroad that goes into um, far Eastern uh, Russia. But, uh-huh. you know, there's, you look at the Chinese geography, there's, there's not a whole lot of ways to get stuff into China overland. And um, China imports a significant fraction of its energy. It imports a significant fraction of things like animal feed and uh, a lot of raw materials and other key economic inputs. And so uh, naval supremacy around China has the significant potential to uh, significantly affect the uh, significantly affect them without even needing to invade. Mm-hmm. Right. If you think about it, they, they're about as dependent on sea trade as Japan is. And that has a significant uh, component to our strategy. If we can cut off the flow of oil into China, we can cripple their economy. And they know this. And that's why a lot of their military buildup has been focused on building lots and lots of ships. Mm-hmm. And our military buildup has been focused on building lots and lots of submarines. That's interesting. So, I mean, I've, heard the argument possibly from you that submarines are just just what naval supremacy almost is turning into a, if i'm describing that to you incorrectly really, i don't sorry. know if you've described that to me but i think that's actually pretty conventional wisdom that the u.s navy's main weapon for sinking ships is submarines and uh, the last major naval war that was fought this is my own personal you know uh hobby horse is the falklands war i don't know if you know that um yeah <laughs> um, <laughs> yes. Yeah, nuclear submarines um, proved to be uh, basically supreme uh, for a few reasons. One, um, they're extremely fast. Uh, two, they're hard to see, obviously. And three, um, it's very difficult to protect a ship from a torpedo. Yeah. So I, I hope that this isn't going in like we're, we're kind of we're, I, I worry that I'm losing focus here. So no, no, this is fine. I'm I'm totally happy to kind of move around, and I think <sighs> the the question of you know naval engagement is seems like it's pretty core to this discussion of what what some kind of a conflict with China would actually look like. Although I have some other questions about that, we can follow up on. So why is, don't you what, go ahead with your questions so that I just don't just ramble? No, okay, yeah. So um, I think. I think so. So the United States is actually investing more in submarines at this point. I mean, I, I had more of an impression that we were still focused and maybe over focused on surface ships. And um, I don't know what historically the submarine budget has been, but I actually saw recently that about fifty percent of the naval shipbuilding budget is directed towards submarines, and that's oh, both. Wow. That's both. Uh, now, I mean, worth noting, submarines are incredibly expensive. Yeah, uh, especially nuclear submarines. Um, and some of that is attack submarines that are designed to sink ships. And some of the, that a significant fraction of that is um, ballistic missile submarines that are supposed to be our nuclear deterrent. Right. Okay. 
Um, and, and what about China? Are they, are they investing similarly? Do we even know? So interestingly enough, China is building up its Navy, but China does not have that many nuclear subs. I think they have something like we, you can look this up. I think the, might as well look this up. Um, I think they have something like six nuclear submarines in the inventory, okay. like attack submarines, and then a handful of, um, a handful of ballistic missile subs, but most of their submarines are conventional. Mm-hmm. Um, and that probably suits their, uh, their needs better than it suits ours. The thing about conventional submarines um, is that they can be very quiet. So a nuclear submarine's advantage, obviously it doesn't need to surface. It also has virtually unlimited range and it can go really fast. A, a ship produces a ton of drag in the water the faster it goes. Yeah. And so if you have a non-nuclear ship, its endurance is going to be really limited if you're just running it balls to the wall. Yep. Uh, so uh, a, a non-nuclear submarine can't travel very far underwater and can't travel very quickly underwater. Um, and, and its range is going to be really limited. And so one way you can avoid a non-nuclear submarine is just by going really fast because it won't yeah. be able to catch up with you. You can't do <laughs> that with a nuclear sub. But on the other hand, something a non-nuclear sub can do is just sit on the bottom of the water in a shallow area with nothing running. Just running off of batteries. Nothing's moving. No moving parts. It's not making any more noise. It's basically like a rock just sitting on the bottom of the ocean, right? I see. And you'll never know it's there. And you just stumble across it and bam, it gets you. Okay. So if you're trying to defend a fixed point or in a sh- or shallow waters or something like that, conventional submarines work very nicely for that. And they're a lot cheaper. Yeah. Okay. Cool. So, I mean, like... and. Are there defenses against that for, say, carrier groups? Well, one way is to just stay away from them. Yeah. Uh, one, you, you stay in deep water and you try to travel quickly and you zigzag to avoid running into them. Um, so if you can force them to move around, uh, then eventually they have to come up and snorkel. Uh, uh-huh. And that produces heat that you can see through like infrared. And it also produces a radar return because it's sticking over the water and it produces a wake that you can see in the water and so on. Okay. And and also the diesel engines produce noise that you can hear. So that the the traditional way to hunt a diesel electric submarine is just run out its endurance until you can spot it near the surface. Okay. Um, And the reason nuclear subs get very difficult to hunt in deep water is they don't have to do that. And they're so they're faster than you are. They can just, they can go like 30, 35 knots and you, you know they they can get ahead of you. You, you can't outrun them. <laughs> it's something this is this is slightly unintuitive, but a ship, a submarine is uh, has a less drag profile than a ship does because the surface wave drag is much stronger than the underwater drag, like the yeah. the, the the water resistance. The most of the most of the drag on a ship is coming from the wave action on the surface. So a submarine can actually go faster than a ship if you if you run it flat out. Okay. So one I'm, I'm going in circles here again. I apologize. No, 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 no. It's, it's great. No, your digressions are fantastic. And I promise I'll, I'll like try and push you, push you away from something. If, uh, if we <laughs> okay. get to, if we get to more yeah. there. Um, so or mired, not moored. So one other qu- thought that I've had a lot is that when people talk about a military conflict with China, there's a lot of discussion of, you know, missiles. There's a lot of discussion of ships. I don't, see people talk so much about what i think the term of art is cyber war and i hate that but you know you know that's funny you mentioned that because like cyber 
I feel like 10, 12 years ago, you know, every, we would all snicker at the term cyber because, you know, it means like um, yeah. jumping off in an AIM chat room or something, <laughs> right? You know, yeah. <laughs> I think that's what it meant to me about 10 years ago. Not yeah. that I would ever participate in such a thing. But um, <laughs> uh, um, uh, you know, people in the private sector or in academia would call it network security. And you, you could tell that it was a government guy talking if it was cyber, right? Yeah. But, yeah. You know, I don't know a whole lot about that. Um, but I do know that um, the importance of computer networks is uh, a huge area of concern. Um, so, so to give you give, to give you my thoughts on this, um, think about if you are suppose you're sitting on a hill with a radio, and you're trying to call in artillery fire on like a guy on the other hill, right? Mm-hmm. The way you do that traditionally is you get on the radio and then you do something that's called a call for fire. Someone who's actually been in the army instead of just sitting through some like badly remembered slides from like other college students would be able to explain this better. But like, there's like a standard format you call in over the radio net and then like it goes to a fire direction center who assigns a bunch of guns to go shoot the guy. Right now, imagine that instead of this, you have like a drone. Okay. And the drone, just like you pan the camera on the drone towards the target. Okay. And the, Uh and the drone, like, pinpoints like the GPS or like the, like the, the, la- the, uh, the like grid coordinates of, uh, of what you're trying to blow up. And then like, it goes like your Papa John's pizza order, right. To, to the gun battery, which then just like automatically or semi-automatically slews the guns over fires, guided rounds and just bam hits it. Right. Yep. Um, that's like super powerful. One of the things that's happened is with precision guided munitions is you can have like an artillery shell fired from miles away that can hit something the size of a manhole cover. Right. And um, being able to connect that like through a computer network to the sensors that are detecting your targets uh, is like a superpower. Right. And, uh, but on the other hand, if that's so powerful, what happens if the enemy can get inside your network? Yeah. And, and like give you bad targets, for example, you know, yeah, that's something I mean, to be, I don't, I don't know how this is being dealt with other than I really hope people are doing really good key management. Ah, uh, yeah. <laughs> right? yeah. I mean, you hope, right. But right. I, I don't know. I mean, it, it's just a safe assumption that everything is owned. I mean, it wasn't I mean, everything too is owned, but everything is, I mean, I mean, but maybe it goes you, both directions. So maybe, but I mean, think about this. If I asked you to break into bank of America tomorrow, you probably couldn't do it. Right. But if I asked, but, but over the next 10 year period, probably someone's going to own bank of America. Did Um, that already happen? I assume so. You know, I, I think we can assume everybody's been hacked at some point at this point. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Um, with, uh, with like your artillery call for fire net, you know, you might not be able to react in time to like make, I, I, I don't know, you know, I, I, how, how does, how does, uh, if, if you don't have like a year to figure out how, how to break into this network, I don't know how that plays out. Uh, on the other hand, you know, they use standard equipment. I, I don't know. Um, yeah. but, but networks are clearly, clearly being able to link people who can see targets to people who can shoot them 
and, and like a completely spanning network is like would be amazing. But the bigger that network is, the more vulnerable it is sort of inherently. Yeah. Let me let me give you a vision of what I'm thinking about that yeah. may not be clear now, but might become clear within say 10 minutes of shots being fired. Yeah. So one, there's this possibility of penetrating military networks that involve targeting, that involve communications, any of that. Would it be, you know, that maybe these networks could be taken down, maybe they could be jammed, maybe they could just be uh, intercepted and, and translated. And, you know, that would be a complete own as far as military intelligence. But I don't think things stop there. You know, you you see conflicts that have happened in the past few years, maybe particularly with Russia. And another thing that would happen immediately is massive DDoS happening in countries that Actually, are- Actually, since you mentioned Russia, I just realized, I think of an example, uh, a really salient example um, that happened in the conflict with Ukraine, which is Ukrainian soldiers started using like apps on their phones to find their locations mm-hmm. uh, and use those to like direct artillery. Yeah. And the Russians created like some kind of app that a bunch of, uh, I, I don't remember exactly how they did this, but basically they hacked into Ukrainians' phones via malware, something like a downloaded app to get the, the positions of Ukrainian troops to hit them with artillery. Yeah. Wow. Okay. That's amazing. Yeah. And, and another thing the Russians tried to do, um, I don't think they were successful with this. Uh, we had a base for a while. I don't know if we still do in Kyrgyzstan that we used to transit people to and from Afghanistan mm-hmm. and the Russians basically like set up a shop across the street from the base that sold USB sticks. <laughs> Amazing. And you can figure out what happens next, right? Yep. The USB yeah, sticks yeah. like pretty quickly we figured out the USB sticks they were selling had malware on them. Yeah. <laughs> and it's, I, I mean, it's just so easy to do And if I, I mean the Russians seem particularly inventive in this and, you know, hats off to them, but it's possible. It's possible that uh, we just never find out the ways in which we phoned them. I don't know. Yeah. So okay. So I mean, like that sort of thing is totally possible and probably ongoing with China because you know I think about other things. For yeah. example, like it's not going to start us shooting nukes at each other if you know, like the OPM hack isn't going to do that, right? Yeah, the OPM hack isn't going to do that, but that that seems like it's sort of instructive in the sense that oh, by the way, now we. You know, have all of these employees. So, for those, who I mean, don't they got remember, my stuff from the OPM hack. I don't think it's affected my daily life at all. <laughs> well, probably not. But I mean, you know, you weren't an operative in China either. No, no, I wasn't. I was just some guy doing uh, IT at the Federal Reserve Board. Yeah. Oh, really? I didn't know you were doing that. That's cool. <laughs> yeah, it's uh-huh. funny. Uh, I, I know you worked for the Fed at one point. By the way, I think it was the Richmond Fed. Is that right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, back in the day. Um, but okay. So there's that. And, you know, of course, uh, Chinese spycraft is ongoing in the United States. I mean, there's that guy in the house who was, you know, fucking some Chinese spy, just yes, classic honey you know, you know, That's something I've been thinking about, which is, I, I you're the economist here. I, I like to think of this in, sometimes in economics terms. I think we have a comparative disadvantage in human intelligence, Right. So so there's different kinds of intelligence. You have human intelligence, which is, you know, collecting sources from people. Right. Yeah. And then you have signals intelligence, which is like listening to to people's cell phone calls, their radio transmissions and electronics, whatever. Right. And we're really good at that. We're like frighteningly good at that. Right. When we're when we're tracking people down by like exploiting by like paying off the people who make what is it? Angry birds to have like a security hole. I think that's something that. 
Yeah, yeah. I think that that was one thing that got released in the Snowden leaks is that uh, the NSA discovered a a security issue with Angry Birds where they were transmitting some information in the clear and they paid the developers not to get rid of it. (laughs) (laughs) All right. <laughs> yeah, I, I and so they were tracking terror, and this was like preloaded onto cell phones uh, that were being used in certain areas of interest. So they were oh. like tracking people by the preloaded Angry Birds app or something like that. Like I might be getting the details wrong, but that's the basic gist. Yeah, um, <laughs> some default installed app had a vulnerability that they paid to keep around. And so you know, sometimes we can we can get pretty inventive too. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, but I don't know, and and then I think about. You know, just carrying on with this. I mean, there was that story that broke last week about the some somebody hacked into a water treatment plant in some city in Florida oh, and and fucked up the chemical levels in the water and made it, I think, un, at least undrinkable and and possibly quite toxic. If, if it were to be do you remember Die Hard Four? Did you ever see that movie? I, I not mentioned it not because it's accurate. What? I do not remember Die Hard for it. Okay, so Die. I don't know. If, so, okay, so Die Hard for it's not a good movie in my view. But you know, the premise of it was basically like these hackers can hack everything, you know, and they're like shutting yeah. random stuff down. Like, oh, they can see the like CCTV camera in the elevator where Bruce Willis's daughter is, for example. You know, um, I think the premise of that movie was like, like, like the they shut down like the whole electric grid and stuff like that. What threw me out of the experience was early on in the movie, the terrorists set off the anthrax alarm in the Department of Homeland Security building, which is like, wait, what's an anthrax alarm? Is that a thing that exists? Like, <laughs> you test for anthrax by swabbing a Petri dish. It's like, yeah, <laughs> who has an anthrax alarm? Anyway, uh. <laughs> like you just set off the carbon monoxide alarm. I don't know. That's a thing. not important. Sorry. Yeah. No, but, no. It's like that, that was like, that's like something people have been thinking about for a while. And it's like kind of scary to think that there's something that I laughed at back when I was a freshman and in college is like semi real now. Yeah. I mean, like, I, I don't know. I see. I mean, it, if I were the United States or if I were China, I would just have like a huge stack of vulnerabilities ready to deploy if there were like, like some- zero days, yep. basically. Uh, you know, I would be astonished if, um, like there weren't like lots of people who were just holding on to zero days for that purpose. Yeah. Now, when the Israelis did the Stuxnet virus to blow up Iranian centrifuges, they mm-hmm. used three zero days in that one. Yeah. And God, I mean, like, you know, that you think about that too. I mean, that was beautiful. How, it's, how- it's amazing. They basically just changed. They just, uh, the, the virus looks for like Siemens, like machinery controllers and then sets them to operate at the resonant frequency of the centrifuges. That's it. Yeah. That's all it did. So elegant. How did that get, how did they get, was that leaked directly by somebody? Um, I think what it was is basically like you get a virus that gets spread worldwide and it's set to like the resonant frequency of these centrifuges. It's like, it's sort of like uh, if you've been having a bitter divorce with your wife and she turns up dead in a pond, like it might not have been you that did it. Yeah. But who else did? I think that's basically how people figured out who did it, right? Who has the motive? Right. So, Um, yeah. Yeah. So, okay. So, I mean, it, I think that's maybe what's most unsettling to me is that it's not really clear how some kind of a military conflict would play out. Just, just 
in the immediate sense that they're so you're, you're, much, you're wondering like, will they shut down all our infrastructure or something like that? Yeah. Well, we shut down their infrastructure and how quickly would this play out? You know? Well, you know, I kind of, um, I, what happens if we put a cruise missile into the, into the three gorges dam? I hear it's fairly resilient. Probably, probably. Um, you can still blow up a dam though. Yeah. Um, but, but you, 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 you get what I'm getting at. Yep. Um, I guess that, that you know, when, when you've got um, missiles and guns and tanks that you can like see, right? It's easier to understand what does this mean for me tomorrow if war breaks out? But if, you know, they might shut down the municipal water supply via a hack, you know, it's a little bit more disturbing, you, you know. Um, yeah. You know, and especially since anything related to electronic warfare, cyber warfare, whatever is going to be classified, like completely classified. Like, uh, you know, there's classified and there's classified, like the existence of like seal team six is classified, but you know, everybody knows about it. And then there's like, you know, how do we detect and track nuclear missile launches? And that's like, if you talk about it, literally the FBI is going to throw you in the clink. Right. Um, so everything to do with that is totally classified. So the, anybody who can actually tell you, with some kind of authority um it's not going to yeah so so i don't know i mean that's that's a little bit disturbing to me just just yeah. the the large amount of uncertainty around it i mean there's the game theoretical very simple game theoretical model of war that suggests that if if people are actually know their relative strengths and are able to predict with precision the outcome of a given war, you're just not going to have wars because you know how it's going to turn well, out. Well, obviously, gonna... we know empirically that's not the case, right? Yes, but so, <laughs> so, there, <laughs> so there's got to be some uncertainty, but it, it seems like there's probably some kind of a monotonic relationship between the amount of uncertainty that that exists around a conflict and maybe the likelihood- and Maybe the likelihood that it actually like plays out. Yeah, um, I'm, not, I'm not sure about that. I'm starting to argue with that model that I just proposed, but I, I don't know. Um, what I have read, and I don't, I'm not Chinese, so I, I don't have a window into this. Is that like the one China principle is a sort of article of faith, and so Taiwanese independence would be a um, an existential threat to. Um, to the Chinese Communist Party. The argument that I read, I can't, it was in a book and I can't remember the name of it. I think it came out around 2006. It was something to the effect of um, China allows dissent over its foreign policy in the sense of, well, the Communist Party should be more communist. You know what I mean? Like it yeah, should be yeah. more of what it does. It should be more aggressive, right? That's the kind of dissent that they won't clamp down on, on like um, WeChat or something. Uh, uh -huh. That... Uh, the 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 Chinese uh, government should be have, take a harsher line on Taiwan or on the United States or so on, and um, that the legitimacy of the party is sort of dependent on the idea that there's only one China and the Communist Party rules all of it or something like that. And so independence for Taiwan that's the case that for the Chinese aren't just going to like you know shrug their shoulders and shout and just then move on with their lives if Taiwan declares independence, which obviously it's been moving closer and closer towards independence. And what's going on in Hong Kong is only accelerating that. Yeah. Yeah. It was interesting. The history of China podcast, which I've been listening to, and I think is mm -hmm. very good, had 
a bit on this and mention Taiwan specifically in the context of this idea of a mandate of heaven, where you know there was this very strong view that there was only one possible legitimate emperor, say, or empire. And and so the I, I can't remember if it was the 91 treaty or, or something else, but both Taiwan and China agreed to this principle of one China and maybe just agree to disagree about the specific nature of what about the whether it was the KMT or the CCP yeah, that should be running. The yeah, place. yeah, right. Yeah, and but that's like, sort of the, the that that's quickly disappearing. Yeah, and I think I think a lot of this is uh, an own goal by. Um, by the Chinese, you know, if the Chinese had actually let Hong Kong do its thing, right, and given uh-huh. them the ability to elect their own leaders and taken the risk that Hong Kong would vote for independence, I kind of suspect that Taiwan would not would be might actually be amenable to something like two one country two systems if the two systems thing were credible. Yeah. What we've seen, what we're seeing with Hong Kong, and what we've seen the entire time since the handover, is that that was never credible. And yeah. So, you know, the it, it just seems like like for a long time, uh, Hong Kongers, you know, they would get angry when the national security law would get a, would get pr- proposed or something like that, but then they would just sort of go back to their business. And it wasn't until like this extradition treaty thing where it became like a real existential threat as it turns out to their existence. Yeah. That, that, that they were willing. Like fugitive, kind of reminiscent of the fugitive slave law, actually. You, what I brought up earlier. Yeah. Yeah. I can see yeah. that. Like, I think that they would have just ultimately put up with it because, you know, the, there's huge benefits that come to Hong Kong from being affiliated with China the way they are with, you know, them getting all of the mainland tourism and, uh, and trade and basically they had them having a lock on the financial markets in China. Um, you know, I think people would be willing to tolerate that if the Chinese, if Xi Jinping had taken a lighter touch, but they're not willing to do that. Yeah. I, I don't know. Was that a mistake? I, hard to say. China, Hong Kong's 3% of the Chinese economy, but in terms of, if they want to peacefully reunify with Taiwan, they've closed the door on that. That's never coming yeah. back now. It's never coming back. So, so like Tsai like Ing-wen was not going to get reelected. She was losing in the polls. And then the the extradition bill crisis happened. And that changed everything. Yeah, and and just to be clear, she was she was the more independence-minded. Yeah, yeah, she's so so they have two parties, right? The KMT, which isn't communist, but you know, is uh, these days is closer aligned to China because it like agrees with like the one China principle, right? Although now they have they're they're totally against one country two systems because that's just a non-starter after Hong Kong. But yeah. the DPP, which is Tsai Ing-wen's party, they are um, they're pro-independence. Okay, and they they've been winning handily simply because nobody trusts mainland China. After what happened in Hong Kong, yeah, and I think that's worth worth looking at both for Taiwan, but also for the general general you know East Asian <laughs> the East Asian sphere. sphere. Yeah, the China yeah. can't be trusted. 
I mean, so the, you know, there, there's been a lot of attention lately to this potential for a quad. So that would be US, Japan, Australia, and India, which is interesting, especially for India, because one, they're enormous. And two, they've traditionally really huge. Non-aligned movement sort of started yeah. there. Yeah. So yeah, I, I think that's interesting strategically because, um, okay, so for one thing, Pakistan is very pro-China, right? Yep. Um, so, so that's relevant. Um, it, by the way, it goes to show you how serious Imran Khan is about protecting Muslims. Uh, yeah, right. <laughs> well, I mean, that, that seems like it goes for most of the, I mean, most of the Islamic world. It's pretty disappointing. Uh, yeah, yeah, and you, we can see that with uh, with Erdogan, excuse me, with Erdogan in Turkey as well, right? Where yeah. they're you know extraditing Uyghurs back to China to be you know executed or whatever the hell is happening to them. Which, like, why the hell? Why would they do? You know, it's I don't need to rant about this. I think my I, I I think we can understand it if we can, if we don't think of it from the perspective of these people being benevolent. Yeah, <laughs> but I mean, it, it's it's not even being benevolent or not. It, it's like being at, like actively participating in it you know like china why would i mean if, if china's motivation for genocide were just you know clearing this region then i mean like that's heinously evil but why would they want additional uyghurs to be imported to be further crushed i mean that doesn't quite make sense to me well so that they can punish people who have escaped or are spreading news about it overseas i guess i don't know yeah okay um, that's fair so you know, I don't think the way China is dealing with the Uyghurs is rational for them. And that's pretty easy to to understand. Um, you know, a lot of times we complain in this country about design by committee. Mm-hmm. But there's an opposite problem, and that's what in the military is called the good idea fairy. Okay. Uh, the good idea fairy. The commander gets a good idea. It's not a good idea. All right. And nobody can tell him no. Yeah. You you see you see what committees protect you from is that. Cuz everybody has some silly ideas once in a while. And you yeah. always need to have it a voice. Like if you're an author, you have your publisher, right? You have somebody uh-huh. who's stopping you and saying, "Hey, maybe this ain't so great an idea." There's no one doing that in China anymore. That's what happened in I don't want to get too domestically political, but in you know the final days of the Trump administration as he had moved through most of his staff, you know, he gets yeah, a good yeah. idea and it's like the staff desperately trying to figure out how to talk him out of his good idea. Right. Uh-huh. Right. You you see how that goes. Yeah. Um, so there's nobody doing that in China. Is that just at the at the level of Xi or I, I you know, I, I that, that, that's what I'm saying. If he if he says jump, people jump. That's not safe to tell him no. And so uh, he has this he has this reaction to civil unrest that's very uh, inflexible, you know. So uh-huh. so you know one of the things that people were were talking about with uh, you know if you look at you look at the response of the Hong Kong police to the riots that they had, um, and a lot of people were pointing out that they were less violent than American police were. And I think that's true. I think if you were shooting bows and arrows and throwing Molotov cocktails in American police, a lot of times they just straight up light you up. That's yeah. true. But there's a big difference, which is that you can also vote here. Yeah. And and not only can you vote, but like local political leaders would pay attention to that vote and they would be working towards a political solution. So maybe some people would get shot, 
But ultimately, there would be some effect, right? There's an outlet. Right. The, the, yeah. the, the Chinese don't have a way of de- under Xi Jinping don't have a way of dealing with these issues that isn't just maximum force. Like they don't they don't have accommodation in mind. It's just crush them. Yeah, I'm I, I mean, I, I've found the comparisons between U.S. protests and and Hong Kong protests to be <sighs> kind of tiresome i i've got a lot of opinions about that and we we should probably not delve into it too much here yeah yeah i think i think we probably agree enough. on that but that's but just on the matter of yeah the police here they use guns more readily but they're also responsive in some sense there's some kind yeah. of political control over them it might not be as strong as a lot of people want but there's some yeah so 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 i think let going way back um yeah. so so I mean, there's this tentative quad that's maybe being discussed, perhaps with India as a. Oh as yeah, a, yeah. We got way sidetracked. I'm sorry. Yeah, yeah India is no, interesting cool. me to to me because you know it sort of flanks them, right? If you have like an air attack on China, if India is involved in that, it can come from over the Himalayas, and you have like two directions you have to defend from. So that's interesting yeah. to me. I don't know how significant that is for our military planners, but it's something that immediately occurred to me. Yeah. Well, I mean, it, it seems important. Partly just because, oh, I mean, all, all sorts of reasons, right? I mean, you know, the United States is is big, but it's not that big, and it's quite far away from China. Whereas, I mean, China, it, it seems like a major constraint on China as a global power is that it's very reliant on sea trade, and it is itself surrounded by semi-hostile nuclear powers. Mm-hmm. In, in in a way that the United States just does not. You know, I mean, we have Canada, we have Mexico, which, <laughs> all right, there are frictions, but neither of them have nukes. No, there, I, there's, no, there's no geopolitical conflict risk from either of them at all. Yeah. And I mean, really, in in a sense, I mean, the, the Western Hemisphere is just America's in, in ways that are more or less imperialist, depending on you know how you look at it. But China is... I mean, it's ringed by India, Russia, Pakistan. I mean, Japan could have nuclear weapons in a hot minute if it wanted to. <laughs> yeah, it could. Although that has uh, rather unique political implications in Japan. <laughs> oh, sure. No, no, I know, I know. Yeah, but you know, I mean, they they could very quickly rearm. If, yeah, if yeah, yeah. Building building a nuclear weapon is not hard. Creating the uh, nuclear material to build a nuclear weapon is the hard part, and they can do that. Yep. Yeah. So. I mean, it, it seems like, and as you mentioned, China is incredibly heavily dependent on on trade for just day to day function. So it, I mean, it seems like in a lot of ways their their ability to expand outward in, you know, a traditional geopolitical mm-hmm. sense is is sort of limited, especially if they take a more belligerent stance with their neighbors, which. I mean, they have been. You know, there was that massive Chinese incursion into India over the past year, which seemed like an incredible cell phone. Why would you do it? It doesn't make sense. Okay, so so that that is something that just baffles me. Like, just think about wh- what they're doing. Um, we're talking places that are like, in some cases, like seventeen thousand feet in the air. Like, you could barely breathe. We're talking like you have to put a turbo on your diesel engine, or it won't go. Yeah. <laughs> 
the the place it's it's so high up plants can't grow there it's just worthless there's no mineral resources of any value it doesn't even make sense that they would care i honestly can't make heads or tails of why the chinese are making these incursions and in, into bhutan and, and india and so on it's i there doesn't i don't see any value to it it doesn't make sense and that's that's to me scarier than anything that it's totally irrational yeah well i i mean i I don't know. I I could see it as, I mean, I I personally don't have any insight as to you know command structures within China as as to different factions. You, you think it, that maybe people are if you're a PLA officer, you're getting you're getting points on your officer efficiency report or something for stealing Indian territory, maybe. Yeah, no, for sure. I mean, you know, it's it's entirely plausible to me in, in the kind of hierarchy that they have that, you know, there's some reason for some faction to want to go and do this or, you know, once it starts to not pull back from it. And, you know, maybe maybe she is someone you can't argue with, but he's one guy. He's got limited attention and, you know, it's very hard to keep control of so many different fronts at once. Yeah, and- I don't know. I got to assume anything that creates a diplomatic incident with with India is eventually going to hit his desk. Yeah, eventually, but maybe then he's already committed, you know, by, by the actions of his subordinates. I mean, there's honestly, I have a feeling that it all comes from the top. That's my intuition. Um, it reminds me of an incident that happened. I, um, in, in 2014, um, Barack Obama visited, uh, Tallinn. Right. To reassure the Estonians that he wasn't going to let basically the Russians do to them what they did to Ukraine. Yeah. And the next day, the Russians kidnapped an Estonian police officer. Oh, I remember that. Yes. His name was Eston Kover. They kidnapped him and dragged him over the border. And then here's the funny part. They charged him with illegally importing a gun, his service pistol into Russia. <laughs> They're so cute. <laughs> which is, which is like, that, that's, 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 I, I mean, Kafkaesque is an overused term, but I think that's yeah. sort of like quintessential Kafka. Yep. Yep. Um, uh, anyway, so, so they charged him with all that stuff and he was investigating like drug smuggling or something like that. And, you know, they said, oh, it was like a local investigation or something like that. But no, you yeah, know cool. that when this happened, it's because Putin told them to do it and he told them to do it. Because it was to send a message to the Estonians that even though Barack Obama was there, you're still not safe. Right. And I just don't see like, you know, when, when a local commander does something like uh, that is contrary to the interests uh, of the national government or something, I think usually what you see is they apologize, they pull back, they're like, whoops, they tried to deescalate. Okay, because like they're uh, really not interested in having this fight, and it's not like embarrassing. You know, you have a scapegoat, right? Yeah. Uh, yeah. I I think it's coming from she. I think she is trying to tell people what's what. That's that's the only interpretation that makes sense to me. What What did you make of the, there were some public spats among the diplomatic corps from China, where I think the ambassador to the U.S. was taking a more conciliatory stance on Twitter. And then th- there were some incredibly belligerent diplomats as well who – did you remember that? Yeah, I remember there was something about like how basically – I think the, the what you might call the Chinese diplomatic establishment 
and much the way that our diplomatic establishment wasn't happy with the previous administration, but maybe, yeah, yeah I, I, this, this is without making an object level stance on who was right in that fight, right? I, I get the sense that the Chinese diplomatic establishment is like ours, more conservative and really not interested in starting fights with people for yeah. no reason, uh-huh. and uh, would rather just like go about their business and not have to deal deal with like, okay, some guy at an Australian university said something mean, right? Yeah, like, I can't imagine if your job is to be at the Australian embassy, you really want to be whining about the guy at the University of New South, South Wales said, like, we care about Hong Kong's freedoms, right? You'd rather be talking yeah. about something else. That's just my sense, my sense of the thing. And they're probably not entirely on board with, you know, it's one of those cases where it's the good idea fairy. Everybody knows that what he's doing is crazy, but nobody wants to go to jail over it. Yeah. Well, <clears throat> I I mean I can see you know if if you have a more informal system for allocating diplomatic posts and mm-hmm. perhaps if you have some kind of reputation you can make alliances and arrange to be put in you know a higher ranking position on the basis of maybe even oh, say your personal pre- connections or something like that. Yeah. Like maybe your incentives to to go and make statements and do something outrageous is actually beneficial to your career. I mean, maybe. Oh, yeah, I, I mean, could totally see that. That would make sense. You know, um, if you start seeing people, if you start seeing people get promoted for saying outrageous stuff, you know, that's going to encourage other people to say outrageous stuff too. So you yeah, know, I mean, I could even see like I, I have no idea. It tells you which way the wind is blowing. Yeah, but I, I could even see. Say, suppose that the PLA has a, a view of the world that's different than cheese, you know, to the extent that that's possible. But I mean, you know, it's 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 kind of a dark, um, a, a sort of a dark web of control. And you know, I I could see them say moving on India in order to maybe force Xi's hand in some direction or another. Yeah, you know, I don't. I honestly couldn't tell you one way or the other. My my sense is that it is that she is the one. Or it, at the very least, the sort of attitude that this is the sort of thing that we should be doing, that we should be picking fights with people, that's yeah. got to come from the top, right? Yeah. Even if the specifics aren't, um, yeah. that kind of culture comes from the top. Yeah. It rolls down. I wonder how much of that is is like – and you know, like the, the incentives for that seem, seem unclear to me too. I, I could definitely see it as a matter of, well, all right, there's some pl- internal instability. I mean, there's massive flooding this year and also COVID, which if you want to talk about something threatening a mandate of heaven, like right there. You yeah, know, although, so- you know, their response to that, you know, I'm interested in how that's going to play out because, you know, they were able to mostly eradicate the virus within their borders. I don't believe their stats, but it's impossible to deny that they did actually get it under control better than most Western countries. But with the vaccinations and they're being slower than us in that, it's, yeah. it remains to be seen whether, you know, it's maybe it'll be like the space race. The Russians got a guy in space first, but we got a guy in the moon and that's what counts. Maybe we'll get everybody, <laughs> maybe we'll get yeah. everybody vaccinated first and that's what counts. So, you know, uh, uh, what Alex likes to say about that, by the way, is that um, Fukuyama was right. I don't have a strong opinion on this as he does, but what Alex thinks is that what has happened with COVID sort of demonstrates uh, how unfree systems are unable to respond in the appropriate way in comparison to free systems. 
to crises of this nature. Yeah, I I think that's true within limits. I mean, I've, I've definitely not been impressed by the you know response of the United States, and I think that yeah. I think a genuinely free system that didn't have controls at all would have actually responded pretty effectively. I mean. Uh, I've ranted about, but yeah, yeah, we're all still wondering what's happening with the AstraZeneca vaccine, for example. Yeah, um, uh, I don't know. So, yeah, me either. <laughs> I don't know. There's a lot of I don't know. Um, so we're about to hit an hour, which is totally fine. But one thing that I was curious about that you mentioned earlier was um, we were discussing the military and their effective or ineffective, um, de- depending on how you look at it, response to something or other. And you mentioned constraints that they're operating under that are perhaps yeah. invisible to. Yeah. Okay. So I'm, I'm going to bring in a ta- something that I, I I think about this with respect to the military a lot. It's something that I learned at business school. And I want to say this isn't scientific in any way. All right. But it's a framework that I found useful. And um it's about organizations. Uh, we in business school we talk about something called the uh, four frames uh, model of organizations, and the, the the purpose of this is to think about if you have a bunch of people in an organization, what makes them do what they do? Okay, and there's four different. The idea is there are four different components. One is structural, one is human resource, one is political, and one is symbolic. The structural frame is. Um, literally the chain of command or who you report to. Like if you report to your boss and he tells you to do something, you know, that's a reason you might do something because he told you to, right? It came down the chain. The human resources angle is what gets you promoted and what gives you a pay raise, okay? So if you find out that doing a particular thing or behaving in a particular way is likely to get you, increase your stature within the organization and give you the kind, I mean, you're working for money, right? That's going to incentivize you to behave in a particular way. The political angle is like horse trading, right? Like I'm friend, you scratch my back, I scratch yours. It's outside uh, the, the formal structure. You know, I have a relationship with this guy on the other team and he'll do it for me because we're friends, right? Or because like I'm dating his uh, his niece or something, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know? Yeah, yeah. Um, and then the symbolic angle is like, we have a mission. Like if you're in a hospital, you know, we want to save lives. So you'll do things because you really want to save lives. Right. Maybe you don't, but um, (laughs) ideally, uh, ideally. Right. Now, the problem is the way and the way these things interact. Right. So if you put someone in a position like a really good manager in a position, okay, you are implicitly incentivizing all the things that he's done and saying this is what gets you promoted. Mm, So it's sort of like solving a system of partial differential equations. (laughs) <laughs> right yeah so when you try to influence the structural nature of your organization you wind up influencing the human the human resource structure of your organization and the political nature of your organization right yeah and i think what we see is that people in the military the, the people at the highest echelons of the military fundamentally understand uh what needs to be done to accomplish goals but they have goals that might be nonsensical like, you know, <laughs> pacify Afghanistan, right? Or, uh, <laughs> right. perhaps solar panels on tanks. <laughs> right, right, right. They might have goals that are kind of nonsensical. They might have um, political constraints that they have to abide by. Um, it might just be that it's a massive organization and, you know, you have your fiefdoms that you have to work within, right? You have power over this or not over that, you know, 
the organization has a character of its own. So you can talk to any individual in that organization and they'll know what needs to be done. But the system, it, but designing a system that will actually do exactly what needs to be done is hard. And, uh, you know, when I see things like, the Marines are more moving towards a force structure that involves smaller units and smaller boats that are less likely to get completely owned by any ship missiles. Right. Mm -hmm. um, you know, that seems like something people have been talking about for years and they're finally doing it. And people have probably known, it seems like they actually understand something when we see things like pushing to put fixed air defense sites, Aegis ashore, like fixed air defense sites in Guam to protect it from ballistic missiles instead of relying on ships to do that, that are expensive. You know, it seems like people understand what's going on. Uh, and, and I, as I've learned more over the years about how these things work, what I've been seeing is that the people in charge of the procurement mostly know what they need to do. And to the extent that they don't do it, it's because the, the, there's something that, that I can't see that's preventing them from doing it. Whether that's, there's like, we need to, like, there's a jobs program they can't kill, you know, uh, there, there's um, resistance within some aspect of the organization or the budget just isn't there. There's other priorities. You know what I mean? Yeah. Right? They're just operating within constraints. I don't know about because uh, if they were to do the obvious thing that everyone thinks they can do, that would screw something else up that it, it would screw some other frame of the organization up. Yeah. And I think that, the, and in particular, I think the military has difficulty focusing on more than one thing at a time for this reason. So for example, in the army, if you want to be chief of staff of the army, you want to be an infantry officer. Okay. And you uh -huh. probably want to have served in the 75th Ranger Regiment. Okay. And what that tells all of the ladder climbing ambitious people is that they should be infantry officers and they should try to get into the 75th Ranger Regiment. Okay? Is that true? Yeah. Yeah. So I have a classmate, for instance, who's clearly... Uh, headed for the upper echelons who they sent him to Georgetown. He was a commit. He's a really smart guy. He's like incredible. His like stories are like would blow your mind. Uh -huh. um, and he was a command. He was, he commanded a company in the 75th Rangers. Okay. Um, and uh, they sent him, they paid for him to go to Georgetown business school, you know, um, because like he, he's destined for greater things. Right. Mm -hmm. And um Basically, what this means is, like in the military, if you want to get promoted, you have to hit a certain certain kinds of positions, right? They're called like key development positions, I think. Yeah. To to to, to go up the ranks, and what you're saying is, these are the things you need to do in order to get promoted. And every ladder climbing guy is going to see who's reaching the top, and they're going to try really hard to get into the kinds of positions and do the kinds of things that get you up there, right? And that mm -hmm. means that all the other stuff might get ignored or it might have less, they might have personnel who are less high caliber and less ambitious. This sounds you see a lot how like, that works? Yeah. This has a lot like the multitask problem in, in economics where, you know, if there's something that, that gets measured as, you know, determinant of your salary or, or some other compensation yeah. and, but your, your job has multiple parts, actually having high powered incentives for people to pursue that, those aspects of their job. It winds up, it winds job up leaving everything done. else behind. Yep. Yep. Yeah. So, so what it winds up doing is, you know, if you want to focus on multiple different things, if you want to have an army that really cares about making sure the artillery is up to snuff, that making sure the air defense is up to snuff, making sure the logistics is up to snuff, 
well, too bad. We've been focusing on making sure the door kickers are really great for so long that it's an army of door kickers. Yeah. And uh, it's hard to see how to organize uh, the military in a way that doesn't do that. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. I mean, I think but I, it seems like that happens over and over and over again where mm-hmm. I mean, like maybe especially in the Navy where you see things like, OK, battleships, you know, everybody loved battleships. And so 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 here's 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 an example of where that might really matter um, in the uh, in the Cold War. The Air Force was really focused, really focused on nuclear war. Mm-hmm. Right. Like winning the nuclear war, the strategic nuclear exchange, the guys in the missile silos, you know, you might wonder why are the guys in the missile silos air force instead of army? That was probably the right move because the air force was like really focused on the like strategic air command people who yeah. had the strategic bombers and the nuclear missiles. Nowadays, the nuclear strike mission is almost irrelevant to everything the air force does. And being a nuclear missile officer is not considered a prestigious posting. Yeah. What does that What does that do to to uh, now, now? Personally, I think that the silo missiles aren't that important anymore. Uh, but uh, you know, what does this do to the quality of people that you can attract and retain, and to that community? You might have people who are there initially, but it's sometimes hard to keep them around in communities that you sort of neglect or abandon. And when when your the focus of your organization shifts. And so you wind up having this trade-off behind, between having parochial organizations that don't talk to each other and are fighting with each other over budget or an organization uh-huh. that lets large parts of its uh, remit wither on the vine. Yeah. Okay. That checks out. So do you, do you mentioned these constraints, even operating under these constraints, do you have any opinions they're able to express about – like, yeah, I think they should cancel the. Uh, I think they should absolutely cancel the the new uh, land based ballistic missiles completely because I think they're totally superfluous and they're supposed to cost a hundred billion dollars. Oh, that's God. one. That's one. That's one thing that I'll just put straight out. And I think everyone sort of has an idea that that, that they're that they're basically useless. Um, so, <laughs> <laughs> all right. Cool. That's one thing that I can say straight up. But but you know. It's difficult to argue to Congress that this triad of land, air, and sea, like, I, I think that the, the politically it's difficult to get rid of them. Yeah. So. Cool. All right. Hey, we're at almost We're probably running it. We're running out of time um, now. I have one one last question for you. Yeah. Favorite book in the Vorkoskin saga? Um, I've only read like two chapters of one of them. Okay, fair enough. <laughs> okay, uh, you know, shot in the dark. All right, right. hey, uh, everyone, this is at Eskadov, Godofska. S G O D O F S K. Yeah, hey man, thanks so much for coming on the show. Um, and I guess, uh, yeah, I I don't know whether I don't know whether we learned anything really concrete. But I think it's probably good for people just to be thinking about this stuff because, you know, COVID's not going to be here forever. China's going to be around for a long time. And I only see things moving in in some direction of change along these lines. So, um, cool. Anyway, um, Stephen, thanks for coming on. Take care, man. Thanks for having me on. Take care.